Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. This week is part of our two-part digital detox spiel. The reason we cover this is simple. Everyone listening to the show has a smartphone. And the odds are good you probably use it more than you'd like. Well, there are also some excellent privacy reasons to cut back on how often you use your smartphone. Specifically, the more you use it, the more data it collects and shares with other parties. This includes the location data of everywhere you go. And we mean everywhere. And while we're not suggesting you ditch your smartphone and get yourself a jitterbug, if we can get you to use your phone just a little bit less, we've successfully shrunk your online footprint. And that helps to keep you and your family safe from fascists and weirdos. So let's start with a simple exercise and a few helpful tips. When was the last time you went through all the apps on your phone? And I mean, really went through them. It's probably been a while, huh? So take a few minutes after listening to this podcast and break out your smartphone and privacy notebook. Because this week, you're going to go through every app on your phone and uninstall the ones you're not using. Does that include your social media apps? We'll get to that, but you'll definitely want to uninstall Twitter. Twitter is now a cesspool for the alt-right and their friends to gather, which is different from the cesspool that it was before. Because this time, Elon Musk peed in the cesspool and then filled it with Nazis. Unused apps on your phone expose you to security vulnerabilities, so the fewer of them you have, the better. We recommend setting some time aside once a month to clean out your phone. This will establish a good habit of removing unused apps regularly. Doing so will help keep you and your friends and family safe from any security breaches caused by those apps. In step two of this exercise, we want you to think critically about the apps you want to keep. Once you remove your unused apps, take out your privacy notebook and write down the apps you've decided to keep. Then write down why you decided to keep the apps that you did. If you can't come up with a good reason to keep those remaining apps, you should delete them immediately. Can't stress how important this exercise is. Writing down why you kept the apps and that you did helps to clarify in your mind why you have them in the first place. This is also a good opportunity if you use certain apps way too much to write down how often you like to use them. Once you've done that, both Apple and Android phones have features that will let you limit how long you can use certain apps each day. We'll link to how to do that in this episode's show notes. 
Okay, let's wrap up today's episode with a couple of quick digital detox tips. Once you're done with this exercise, remove all of the remaining apps from your home screen. Your home screen should always be blank. This adds an extra layer of friction when you mindlessly reach for your phone. And speaking of friction, if you're going to keep any social media apps on your phone, make sure you sign out of them. While removing social media apps from your phone entirely is the best practice, we know that might not always be possible. Signing out of these apps will prevent you from looking at them without purpose, which honestly is most of the time what we go to look at these things. Social media apps can be a lot of fun, but you also don't want to give them all of your time and data. That's because none of these companies can be trusted. Just ask BJ. He wrote a book about that like a decade ago. Are you still listening? We hope so because we have a special surprise. Back in 2017, BJ's first book on privacy came out. It was called Privacy and How We Get It Back. Broadway actor Roger Wayne did the narration for the audio edition of the book. Our editor, Andrew, was nice enough to go through the audiobook and pull out the sections that are still very much worth sharing with you today. So if you stick around and listen to this miniseries, after every privacy tip, you'll hear another excerpt from BJ's book, Privacy and How We Get It Back. Take it away, Roger! 8. Big Data, Bigger Business Earlier, I explained that your data is valuable, and that's why so many non-government entities want to invade your privacy. The more data that companies can get, the more money they can make off you. This has been in practice since the beginning of the internet boom, when Netscape Navigator was harvesting data on their users to monetize. In theory, by using an internet platform or app service, you're aware of what the company is doing to collect your data since you read the terms of service. But the reality is, nobody reads these agreements, and every company knows that. Companies especially those that collect data by being creepy, have incentive to change their terms of service often, and without warning, to justify some of their more dubious data collection practices. In 2011, for example, Dropbox altered their terms of service, briefly, to claim they owned all your stuff that was uploaded to their service. In October of 2017, Patreon changed its privacy policy to prohibit the use of their site to support adult content creators. The contract you agree to, the terms of service, may in theory protect you, but it actually does the opposite as it can be changed on a whim. So here I want to provide you with some examples of this invasion of privacy, as well as explain what's going on within the world of the tech that fuels this behavior. Verizon and Google's Creepy Behavior No matter how evolved we like to think we are, we humans still very much operate under the ancient credo of monkey see, monkey do. For example, if you see your friends passing around a funny video, you're likely to pass on that same video. Partly because you think the video is indeed funny, but mostly because you want others to think you're funny. Your friend then gets the video and goes through the same process, usually sharing it for the same reason. We're herd animals, even when we pretend to be individuals. For those of you who watch South Park, there's an episode where Stan goes and joins the goth kids at school. They all want to be non-conformists, but in doing so, the goth kids all look, act, and talk the same, which Stan points out. In a lot of ways, we're all those goth kids, whether we like it or not. And that goes double for employees of large companies in a very competitive space. So if a large multi-billion dollar tech company is doing something creepy to collect data, then it's more than reasonable to assume smaller companies looking to have multi-billion dollar valuations themselves 
will do the same. Paths Dave Morin provided us with one such example already. But let me give you two more examples of what I'm talking about from the history of the Internet. AOL. These days, it's easy to forget AOL exists, especially now that it goes by the super-dumb Orwellian name of Oath after Verizon bought it. But if you rewind the clock to 1994, back when you needed AOL or a similar service provider to access the Internet, AOL was massive. At one point, AOL was so big they bought Time Warner, not the other way around, as is often reported. How did AOL get so valuable? They made money from people by using advertising, branded partnerships, and subscription services. The company very quickly developed the nasty habit of collecting and selling their users' data without permission. In 1996, after the media called them out on this behavior, it appeared AOL had backed off from the practice. Three years later, though, AOL actually revised their terms of service without informing their users to allow the company to sell user data to their business partners without consequence. They backed off after another media backlash, which, as I hope you're starting to see, is an incredibly common pattern. Even today, as we saw with the Samsung Smart TV incident, where it was revealed by Samsung in their privacy policy that the Smart TV's remote includes a microphone that potentially could listen in and record your conversations while you're holding the remote, a company will try to collect data in a creepy way, be confronted by media or consumers, and then back off only to try again later. AOL is important to note here because it's one of the first instances of an internet platform selling user data without the user's permission or knowledge. Today, that's common practice. Just ask Google and Amazon, who, under new EU privacy laws, will have to inform customers that their Echo and Home devices are always listening to them, no matter what those companies say about the devices only activating when they hear their watchword. I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So, so why can't you get off? So what, what are your... <laughs> you guys. The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy, helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. Speaking of Google, Google. To provide just one example of the numerous instances where Google has done something creepy to you, I'd like to mention the often-reported Street View incident from 2010. First, because I just told you the Google Home devices are kind of creepy, but also because this is at the top of my list of all-time creepy things Google has done to gather your data. In 2010, as Google vans were driving around the country taking those highly useful Street View pictures that can be found when using Google Maps, the company was also scooping up any data that anyone had received or sent using nearby unsecured Wi-Fi connections. 
meaning that if someone had just sent a dick pic to someone else over a Wi-Fi connection that wasn't password protected, it was very likely that Google now had that picture and could use it in some capacity. Google, for their part, tried to claim that they'd collected the data accidentally. As time went on, Google changed their story and said everything sent over unsecured Wi-Fi was public, and therefore their data harvesting was not illegal in the first place. U.S. Judge James Ware disagreed, and eventually Google apologized, paid a fine, and claimed to have stopped collecting data via Street View vans. However, that is not the end of this story. As of 2017, Google is still appealing the case, and they even tried to have it heard before the Supreme Court. The case in question is Joffe v. Google Inc., for those curious. Where the case currently stands, the judge determined that Google's activity was, in fact, illegal. Consider for a moment that this practice was something Google had claimed to have been doing accidentally, then claimed they were no longer doing, but still tried to contest the issue in court later. That should strike anyone as a bit odd. If Google knew what they were doing was wrong and have claimed to stop doing it, why continue to contest the legality of their data collection methods? Recall again just how valuable your data is. And even though Google has already made many people wealthy, it still has a business to run and obligations to fulfill for its shareholders. Being one of the most prominent tech companies today, like AOL was back in 1994, it's reasonable to assume that other tech companies are observing Google's behavior and have opted to take similar approaches to collecting your data. Monkey see, monkey do. Another quick example of monkey see and monkey do. Foursquare, like Twitter, burst onto the tech scene with a lot of tech and mainstream media attention before quickly floundering. In their defense, Foursquare changed their business model and are now doing quite well for themselves by selling your data. Surprise! But that's not why I wanted to tell you about them. In a similar fashion to Google's harvesting of data available on the routers of unsuspecting users, Foursquare made a change in their app to allow it to constantly track users. This was a quiet change from what the app originally allowed users to do, which was to check in upon arriving at a location. And although that may not sound so bad, I haven't mentioned the best part. This tracking, in the words of the blog Consumerist, doesn't just take place when mobile users open the app, though. It takes place literally any time their phones are powered on. Even if you've just booted up your phone and have forgotten that Foursquare was ever installed on there, it's now watching where you go. The connection between Foursquare and Google? Google had purchased what was the precursor to Foursquare, Dodgeball and the Dodgeball co-founders left Google after some time to start Foursquare. Monkey see, Google. Monkey do, Foursquare. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us today for uh, Stupid Sexy Privacy. Would you be so kind as to take a moment and introduce yourself? My name is Kelly Carlin, uh, and I am... Uh, many hyphenate things. I am an author. I'm a performer. Recently, a documentary producer, um, and I also um, have a, a community called the Sacred and the Profane, where I offer uh, my coaching program, which is called Humans on the Verge. 
And uh, what else? I have my master's in Jungian psychology. I'm a certified life coach and uh, been practicing Buddhism for about 25 years and all around just very, very curious about the human journey, human condition, the creative process, and um, trying to find my own way through this strange thing we called life. (laughs) I think we all are. Um, let me, let me ask you on your website, you mentioned that you spent a summer without using, uh, your phone and any tech. So I'm just curious about how that came about and what the experience was like. Well, um, that was quite a while ago. Uh, and part of the reason I did that was because I've, you know, ever since 2008, when these smartphones became available. And shortly after that, then things like Facebook and Twitter uh, became a part of our life. Um, These screens and these phones have become very much um, the kind of authoritarian tyrants of our life. Um, Little did we know back then that these people who were excited about their technology um, were building these devices and these programs to completely make us basically Pavlov's dog. And um, I think we all entered it with a lot of hope and optimism and curiosity and excitement as any uh, little kid would with a new toy. Uh, But I think we had very little knowledge about kind of the mental health effects of it. So for me, I could feel uh, I'm pretty tuned into my somatic inner body experience and being someone who's had anxiety and depression most of my life and and panic attack syndrome pretty, pretty nastily in my twenties, very, very tuned into my body and really saw the amount of tension and anxiety um, and thrill and excitement, like the adrenaline rushing through my body uh, with these devices and could really feel the toll of that. And having been a person who practices mindfulness meditation um, on and off, but pretty consistently the last 25 years, uh, you know, I really knew that being able to sit without being activated or watching myself be activated is a really, really powerful, powerful way to learn to be, uh, I think, in a, in a more grounded, uh, conscious uh, relationship with life. And so um, anytime I take time away from the screens and the phone, which is harder and harder these days, I'm an entrepreneur now, so I'm always feeling right. like I have to catch up on things and keep things, but I do try to put some real boundaries around it still, but t- taking time away from it uh, for a longer period of time, you really do notice that it's a drug. It's like cocaine. Like the first few days or week is withdrawal and you're having withdrawal symptoms and you're wanting to grab the phone and you're wanting to look at it. You're needing that hit. And that's so scary. Um, and then once you kind of get through that, then you're like, your, your whole nervous system goes back to some sort of other place and you realize (laughs) 
how much you really don't need these devices <laughs> or need all this information coming at you all the time. Yes. Uh, we've become addicted to this level of stimulation. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm so um, increasingly grumpy and, and irritable about these devices and the way our culture is set up now. Um, making us have FOMO all the time. And, and it's just not true. We're not going to miss out on anything. Uh, really, uh, you know, if, if, if something big is happening, you'll find out. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's true. I, I mean, people, I, I remember, uh, there's a line in a Tim Ferriss book. I'm not like a huge fan of his, but it, mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember where he said, if, if something is important, I'm going to hear about it, you know, whether I'm out or I'm in a cab or like someone's going to be like, hey, did you hear? Uh, so I think I think that's so true. And that's how we used to find out about things, right? Your neighbor tells you or like you said, you're you're out somewhere and, you know, hey, you know, you run into someone, you know, or if it's really big, you run into a stranger and they say, hey, did you hear that? You know, there's a plane that just flew into the World Trade Center, you know, yeah, like. That's right. um, so. Yeah. And this, you know, this idea, it's, it's just, it's so, um, it's so, I don't know if it's Orwellian or, or the other guy who there's like two different guys who kind of have this view of the, the weird future. And I can't remember the other person's name, but it's like, we have more information than we've ever had. And we are less, and we have less wisdom and knowledge. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let me let me ask you, what did you find? How do you approach it now? Like, you know, working as an entrepreneur, knowing that you have to use these devices, are there any rules or restrictions that you put in place to kind of just protect, protect your mind a bit? Yeah, definitely. I, I have a 15 minute limit on my Twitter account, and it'll come up at 15 minutes and say, Hey, do you want to extend this? And Sometimes I find myself hitting yes. Uh, so th so there's that. I did get off of Facebook four years ago. Nice. Uh, and I just started my business and I was talking to someone about it. And she said to me, as an entrepreneur, she said, you know, your mailing list is way more important than your social media reach because Facebook or Twitter could go away tomorrow and then you would have you wouldn't have those people to talk to. Yes. And that helped me a lot um, to just relax. And, and I'd realized that on Facebook, I, it, it was, it had been a great thing when my dad first died and I was able to connect to fans and build community on there and learn how to be a public person on some level. But then it, it just got so toxic after Trump and everything like that. So I got off Facebook. Um, I'm still on Twitter, which is, uh, weird. Because it's Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Twitter is dying a slow death. I mean, it, yes. what it was is gone. Um, and I'm still I, I don't think I'm really um, letting myself accept that yet. Um, <laughs> but I have but I have 80,000 followers over there. And there's some part of me that's like, yeah, I still have a reach to reach people and people are still, you know, I try to bring joy and I try not to be reactive over there. I'm not perfect at it. But I try to bring joy and some sort of groundedness to that space so and i know people still enjoy that <laughs> if they see it because we don't know how that algorithm works anymore yes. 
So I, tr- so, so I'm, you know, and then Instagram, I just, I, you know, it's also owned by Meta and or Zuckerberg. And I really, uh, I don't like it over there. But I, I, I originally made that account just because I'm a photographer also. And I wanted to just share some beauty in the world. But, you know, unfortunately, and I try to really be careful who I follow over there. So my rules are to really not spend too much time. And I certainly don't give a lot of those places much um, weight um, about things. I um, Most mornings, I wait a few hours before I check my email. I try to, I, I meditate, I do journaling in the morning. And um, I um, do some writing, I try to do some writing, sometimes I'll just check email just to make sure there's no fires I need to put out. There usually isn't. And try not to get sucked in right away. So I try to shut it down. Um, so I really do try to keep my mornings pretty calm and pretty grounded in humanity and earth. Right. Um, and, uh, and then as far as the, you know, just, yeah, I try to leave my phone alone during the day. I try to put it down places in, in my house where it just sits and I don't have to have it near me. Um, and then I'm just really mindful about when I am stressed, how often I do reach for it, like how it becomes a thing. Um, but I really do try when I'm at concerts or out to dinner or with friends to really not take it out of my purse. That's another thing too. I just try to be in the experience. Um, and it just breaks my heart when I look around in restaurants or concerts or parks and see people staring at these screens. I, I feel like some alien, I feel like aliens have landed and they have like implanted something in our brain. And now all we do is we look down at these little rectangular <laughs> devices all day. You know, when you look at it from like a science fiction movie point right. of view, it's, um, it's pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, our brains are no match for, I, no, that's, that's no. just what I've seen over and over Zero. again. Yeah. I just said it last night on Twitter. Um, I said, uh, it's been an interesting experiment, but clearly our frontal lobe executive function of this human brain is not evolved enough to be able to withstand the hypnosis of these devices. And I think about people uh, like myself that are ADHD and oh. uh, yeah, like it's, you know, it, it's already hard, right? But now you've got that additional layer of you're constantly looking for stimulation and, and the phone provides it. Yes. And I'm pretty sure, you know, we all have brain fog now. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we all think it's like, oh, it's a pandemic. It's this, it's that. I'm pretty sure it's these phones. I'm pretty yeah. sure that we have, we're using so much. There's only so much energy the brain has to comp, to compute, to access memory, to access information. And I'm pretty sure we've overloaded the brain. And so we're, it doesn't matter if someone's 25 or 55, no one can remember anyone's fucking name. Yes, that's right. <laughs> or what the name of that movie is, or, you know, or that name of that, the capital of Nebraska, you know, and I used to have such a sharp brain and look, I'm, you know, I'm postmenopausal and I'm going to be 60 this year. I mean, it's like, okay, I've got some age stuff. Sure. sure. But. I know that this all started when I, when these phones came into my life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, let me ask you, I just want to go back to the journaling and meditation in the morning. Is mm-hmm. that is that mm-hmm. something that you would suggest people listening to who might be looking for? Yes. It's an essential foundational practices in the work I do at Humans on the Verge. I, I do. I recommend any kind of meditation where you have to, you can do the ones where they're guided, which are fine. But um, constant talking meditation to you, that's a, that's a journeying, that's a visual imagery type of experience. But mindful meditation, uh, I learned through Thich Nhat Hanh. So I have his app, Plum Village. I do use his guided ones, but his guided ones are there just to give you a couple of words so that your brain, your mind has something to focus on while your mind will wander and then come back. And anything that can help you learn to witness your thoughts, your emotions, the sensations in your body will help you even if if you do it for, I always tell people, if you do it for three weeks, you'll start to feel a difference. If you do it for six weeks, you'll feel a bigger difference. If you can do it for three months and get a real habit going, it will change your life. And um, people always say to me, I can't meditate. The minute I sit down, my mind wanders. Right. And I want to say to them, well, that's the job of your mind. You're that your mind's job is to wander because your mind is wired to keep you alive. And the mind wanders because it's looking for danger or it's looking to solve problems or it's looking to rehash problems it had in the past to make sure that it solved them properly so that if they come again in the future, it will have a solution. Your job is not to make your mind stop wandering. Your job is to watch your mind wander and if you do that enough, it stops wandering all the time. And that takes time. And so most of meditation, the first week, 10 days, three weeks, six weeks, and even for the rest of your life. But, but when you start as a beginner or when you're restarting a practice after not doing it for a while, the first good chunk of time is going to be you just getting through it. There's not going to be any moments of bliss. There won't be many moments of empty mind. There won't be a lot of time where you're not suddenly thinking about being at Disneyland or your to-do list. The whole point of meditation is to learn to recover back to center. So what I what I tell my clients is sit you can use the Thich Nhat Hanh app if you want, or some kind of other insight timer that lets you sit quietly. Um, and the minute you notice your mind has wandered, that is the moment where you don't pick up a stick and beat yourself up and say, I hate myself. I hate my brain. I can't do this. This is too hard. I'm broken. I'm stupid. You don't do that. You treat your mind, your wandering mind, as if it was a puppy or a toddler. And if a puppy was going to get into something that it's not supposed to get into, or if a toddler was learning how to walk and fell down, you would say to the puppy or to the toddler, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Good try. Let's begin again. Let's do this differently. You would bring a lot of love and warmth and kindness 
And so that's how you have to approach your wandering mind, because it is the same kind of level of curiosity and attention span as a toddler or a puppy. And so you have to just be kind to yourself. And you may do that one time during a 20 minute meditation, you may do it 40 times during a 20 minute (laughs) meditation. The point is not you're, you're not winning if you do it less time. There's no winning here. There's no gold star. The gold star is showing up on the cushion or the chair and consistently doing it every day, no matter what. It's the consistency of showing up that will change your brain, that will start to change your nervous system. And it is also the kindness with which you bring to yourself during the practice that will begin to heal your relationship with yourself because we are not very often kind to ourselves. We have a lot of voices in our head that have a lot of rules and a lot of high standards and a lot of expectations. And we have very few voices inside of us that are like big grandma laps that will take us in no matter what state we're in, no matter how much we screwed up, no matter how confused we are. And so it's about building all of those muscles. And if you do that for six weeks or three months, I guarantee you, your life will change. I want to ask you real quick about, in the time that we have, about balance. Um, Do you think that the tech and the apps sometimes act as if something is in balance or a person is not in balance, that we sort of use these apps and technology as an escape? Oh, for sure. They're like any other thing that we use to distract ourselves from discomfort. So if we're lonely, if we're, uh, have some unconscious, um, emotions or unconscious trauma that we've never processed, uh, if we're unhappy in our career relationships, um, if we're feeling ennui, um, a little existential dread, whatever it is, a hundred percent, we will, you know, it's hard to sit with these things. This is why the meditation practice is so powerful because we learn to sit with everything. Um, but those of us, and I will include myself always in this pile who, you know, stuff comes up and we're not ready to deal with it, or we don't know how to deal with it, or the younger parts of ourselves are activated that that really can't sit with it and really don't know how to metabolize it all. We will look for something outside of ourselves to distract us, whether it's food, sex, drugs, or the phone, which is another form of a drug. Uh, so yeah, we will look to things. We will look, you know, for you know, there there's this big talk right now this week. I think the Surgeon General just came out about loneliness yes. in America. Yes. And we've lost our ability to connect with each other. And the more we look to our phone, the more we look, the more we crave connection, the more we look to our phones and we look to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and these other places to connect. Um, And the less we find it because it's not real. It's not, it can be real connection. I have met wonderful people through Twitter and through Facebook and they've become actual friends in my real life. But the kind of connection we need 
as human beings. We are animals. We need in the room, physical, being around other human being type of connection. That's why the pandemic was so hard on us. Um, And that's why kids are doing so poorly because they were ripped out of their social network, which is so essential to human development. So, you know, we're in search of connection really. And, um, and companionship and reflection, you know, we're social creatures. And part of that is about needing to see other human beings to see ourselves. And when we only see human beings through memes and 280 character sentences um, or shared other tweets or whatever they are, or, or glorious pictures of your fabulous life, um, we're not really connecting. We're, yes. we're being entertained. It reminds me of the, the Neil Postman uh, philosophy mm. of amusing ourselves to death. Um, we only have a few minutes left, so I just wanted to ask real quick, is there anything that I didn't ask uh, that you think you would like to bring up concerning you know, the digital detox and, and people trying to manage your lives with, with this technology and devices? Yeah, I would just really invite people to, to trust themselves away from these devices, to, to trust their human bodies and their souls and their, their innate human nature and drive towards what's real and true for them and to find something that they can do and find some people they can be with where they can really, really put down the phone and let themselves get into a flow state, you know, whether it's a hobby or um, some sort of group event or hiking or out in nature or traveling or whatever it is where their life, your the moment doesn't have to be mediated through these devices or an app or a screen where you can really be present. And, and this flow state is so important. You know, it's the place where really then our imagination and our creativity and time stands still and we forget to eat and all of that stuff in a good way um, because we're really connecting to really what we're evolved for. Um, and I think it is really what we are missing in our culture. And so if there's an old hobby you have, um, but anything more, I mean, even jigsaw puzzles, like during the pandemic, I found myself, a lot of us were drawn to jigsaw puzzles and it's like, yeah, well that could be seen as something distracting. And it was for me, it helped me ground in my anxiety, but it was also a beautiful metaphor for, you know, some part of my psyche trying to put the pieces together. Um, you know, the imagery, the, the, the symbol of that was, was very potent for me, but it's also very tactile. You know, you're touching puzzle pieces and you're looking at the picture and you're, you're using parts of your mind to solve something. And, uh, and it's not on this screen. It's not on this little device, which really does. I mean, I don't, I can't cite all the research, but they have really, really found that what happens to the brain the minute it looks at a screen changes things. So anything where you can be sensate, where you can use your actual senses, hands, touch, feel, sight, smell, sound, um, so important. This is why nature is so important. Get out. The minute you feel like yourself on the screen too long, close that, close that computer, 
make sure you're taking breaks during the day if you have to be on the computer all day. Uh, one thing I do do is I do take a whole month off from my computer each year now because I do a lot of zooming through my business and right. with my coaching. And I just don't zoom for a month. And then when I come back, I say to my clients, we can zoom, but I really, I'm not going to turn the cameras on because uh, the minute you have a camera on, you're either staring at your own face or staring at someone else's. And it's, it's, it just, it adds another layer of busyness in your brain. And I find that I'm much more intuitive and tapped into what really is happening in the call when I'm not looking at them. So try some experiments, experiment with it. Let yourself be in charge. I like that. I think that that's, that's a great note to end it on. Most things people hate about the internet comes from a lack of privacy, like those creepy ads that make you think your phone is listening to you. DuckDuckGo is an all-in-one privacy app that can help you with that. It's your internet browser with private search, tracking blocker, encryption, and even built-in email protection, all for free. Just go to DuckDuckGo.com to learn more. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv special report. Do you need a privacy audit? To help find new episodes of Weiwo.tv, BJ is offering one-on-one privacy audits. These are private, one-time consultations that are conducted securely through Signal. During the audit, BJ will walk you through all 23 steps from our special report to help you better protect your privacy. Now, just to be clear, we're going to share all 23 steps with you here, for free, in this podcast miniseries. Because these are all tactics you can use right now to help protect yourself from fascists and weirdos, and we want to help keep everyone safe. These privacy audits are meant for people who may need some extra help implementing these steps or have additional questions that they want answered. You can have your one-on-one privacy audit with BJ by sending an email to bjmendelson at duck.com. That email again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time right here on weiwo.tv, right?